Welcome to CIFAR's Workplace Class Action Litigation Trends mini-series, a series of five episodes in which we provide analysis of 2021 class action decisions and emerging trends for 2022. All content in this series has been sourced from the 18th Annual Workplace Class Action Litigation Report book launch event held in February of 2022. Over the course of the series, the report's author, Gerald Jerry Matman Jr., will discuss the most notable trends in the workplace class action space. Jerry is one of CIFAR's preeminent class action litigators, co-chair of our class action litigation practice group, and the editor of the Workplace Class Action Litigation Report, which is recognized as the nation's most complete guide to workplace-related complex litigation. In part five of the series, Jerry outlines the ways in which workplace arbitration programs continued to have a profound impact on workplace class action litigation in 2021. Jerry discusses how these programs influenced the nature of class action litigation filed and shifted the types of claims and what to expect in 2022. The final area is arbitration and its impact. And by my way of thinking, this is the number one defense and the most successful defense that employers are able to mount in terms of an ultimate defense device to keep out of workplace class action litigation. Depending on what sort of survey you look at, most people think that about 60 to 70% of private employers have adopted some sort of ADR programs, uh, but uh, there were over 100 rulings where judges gave uh, a red light to the plaintiff's bar in a class action, gave a green light to employers to get out of the court system and to enforce their arbitration agreements, whereby a worker who brought a class action could only litigate their claim uh, in a confidential arbitration on an individual basis. As Paige um, alluded to up on Capitol Hill, there are bills to overturn parts of EPIC system involving claims for sex harassment or other areas. There are Uh, attacks on the entire ruling to abrogate it. And so I think that employers would be well served to keep track of this particular area to see uh, what is going to eventuate here uh, in trying to control their uh, litigation risk through use of arbitration agreements. So what do all of these developments in this tour of the workplace world mean for employers into the coming year? Well, I think the first principle that needs to be recognized is success begets copycats. And these large-scale settlements involving millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, generate a lot of social media publicity. Employees read those things, and they visit lawyers and talk about bringing class actions where they think something might have happened to them. And so um, I definitely believe in 2022, there are gonna be more class actions filed than there were in the previous year. And certainly the lifting of the pandemic will contribute to the volume of those particular cases. I, I think the second takeaway is the way in which employers pay and compensate employees remains what I call the key inflection point for workplace class actions. Uh, Wage and hour cases will continue to be the number one risk, the number one filing, and an area where the plaintiff's bar tends to make uh, the most money and continues to track those statistics that we saw um, throughout 2021. Um, With the Biden administration's focus on workplace issues uh, and its uh, championing pro-labor policies, 
I think inevitably there's going to be more government enforcement litigation than the year before. And I think it will increase in volume and intensity in terms of the push the envelope type nature of it and the amounts of employees at issue. And this is an area where um, any employer under the scrutiny of the government, um, as I had said before, a tiger by the tail, a very difficult area. I think there are many uh, COVID class action claims in the federal and state court systems. Those will work out and as uh, workforces uh, begin to return to work or have hybrid arrangements where they're part remote and part in the workplace, you're gonna see variations on those class action claims uh, being brought. And then I think the final area is arbitration. Uh, the defense remains viable. Uh, by June of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court will be uh, passing on a case from California called Viking River Cruise, and there is the potential that it will close the one existing loophole uh, that exists for employers in California for uh, arbitration defenses. It's known as PAGA claims. Um, private attorney general claims that are brought based on the public policy of the state of California, which thus far the California Supreme Court have said are outside uh, the purview of the Federal Arbitration Act and may not be compelled to arbitration. If the Supreme Court should say that intellectually there's no difference between its decision in Epic Systems in 2018 and the application of the FAA to PAGA actions, um, it will be a very interesting political dynamic and query whether or not that will fuel efforts uh, at the federal level to overturn the EPIC systems decision or the Supreme Court's views as to the uh, bar created by arbitration defenses and query uh, if the Supreme Court should not overturn and greenlight uh, PAGA claims whether or not other states besides California will begin to expand legislation to allow workers and their advocates to bring those sorts of claims um, in the future. So uh, I expect that decision by June and it'll be a very important bellwether decision in terms of probably these public policy notions underlying arbitration. So what can employers do? We'll end on that. Um, by my way of thinking, solid HR fundamentals have never been more important than before. The simple blocking and tackling of being a good uh, employer with sound and uh, HR policies, procedures, the way in which they're implemented, having what I call early warning systems, grievance policies, HR hotlines, ethics lines. None of these class actions should come as a surprise. More often than not, these early warning systems can allow an employer to detect a problem to investigate it, resolve it, and try to avoid the heartache of one of these claims becoming a class action brought against the employer. Remember also that a claim might seem small when it's brought, but it has the potential to expand. Basically, we see that with EEOC charges that might involve one worker or a Department of Labor complaint involving one worker, and then that federal agency uh, begins to dig in, investigate, expand and claim that the investigation at hand involves um, multiple workers, hundreds of workers, thousands of workers, and turns into um, a pseudo class action. The plaintiff's bar tends to do the same thing. 
And remember that uh, kind of workplace uh, ideology of is arbitration good? Is arbitration bad? Is that consistent with my company culture? The statistics don't lie, and they show that uh, the best way in which employers have been winning these cases, avoiding the expense and heartache of defending them, and um, not having to pay these large settlements is through um, um, good arbitration programs that uh, involve class action waivers. So that's an awful lot and a big tour of the world in terms of uh, what occurred in 2021. And like Paige, look forward to answering any questions either at the end of our session today in the few remaining minutes we have or online for any questions that came in. But Thank you so much for the privilege and honor of being with you today and talking about these issues. Terrific. Um, so thank you both for your wonderful comments. Really appreciate that. Um, and I want to thank uh, our audience members who have been engaged this entire time and asking questions during the presentation. Um, we obviously can't address all the inquiries and comments, but um, I thought I might uh, ask a couple questions um, that, that did uh, come in to us. So uh, the first question I wanted to direct to uh, Paige. Um, I think a lot of uh, our listeners um, and viewers were very interested in the impact of COVID-19 um, on uh, labor and employment issues. Uh, so we have Aaron from Dallas who's asking um, about your coverage of the impact of COVID-19. Um, and what was the most unexpected area or areas of change to you? Uh, can you talk about some stories or topics that you're seeing that you haven't seen in previous years or pre-pandemic? Certainly, and thank you so much for the for the question. That's a great one. Um, we sort of joked uh, on our team that, um, you know, as soon as the pandemic hit, everyone sort of became a labor and employment reporter because it really just, it the pandemic hit every corner of the universe, obviously, but I mean, especially the workplace. Like that was just it. It so keenly changed and so quickly changed so many, you know, day to day things that we'd sort of taken for granted, if you will. Um, in terms of stories that I wrote that were really interesting um, or kind of surprising to me, um, one story that I wrote, and I don't think I ever heard of this actually happening after the fact, although I kind of heard anecdotes of like similar situations, but. Um, one story we wrote that dug into this idea of like employers asking whether they could segregate employees based on vaccination status. So, you know, have your vaccinated employees on one floor and your unvaccinated employees on another floor. And again, that's just kind of the, you know, a situation or, or circumstance that never would have occurred to me if not during a pandemic. I mean, that just wouldn't necessarily happen. Um, but in terms of things to to sort of watch in this area, I mean, I think that, you know, as employers and employees catch up to this, lawmakers are always a little bit behind, frankly. So I think that we'll continue to sort of see the fallout, as Jerry said, the kind of overhang of COVID-19 um, on Capitol Hill. And, you know, down the line, I think that we'll sort of still be grappling with these larger issues, issues around equity, for example, issues around worker displacement and from the workforce, issues around, you know, um, just longer term issues, if you will. So I think lawmakers are grappling those, with those questions and we are too. Thank you. Excellent. Um, we have time for a, um, at least one more question. Um, so Jerry, uh, one came in here about uh, recent shifts in the labor force. 
uh, and how they may impact key areas like class um, actions. Uh, and if you can go further on that topic, um, do you think that we're going to be seeing more of the same in policies put forth by federal labor agencies? And do you expect trends identified in government enforcement to continue to favor a pro-labor movement, or will it be tempered as the U.S. stabilizes and things become more or less, uh, you know, sort of a return to normal? Well, my, my personal prognostication, having lived through this before with other administrations, is I think that um, measured is a, a, a term that uh, it's kind of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it might be measured insofar as Democratic-controlled agencies are concerned, and it might not be so measured compared to uh, the way a business views it. But I definitely believe that uh, unlike um, the prior Republican uh, administration, you're going to see more cases. They're going to be targeted against industry leaders or cases involving large groups of employees tend to be very messy, very complex, very expensive, and that um, the agencies will be very, very aggressive and that the number one um, issue for them is enforcement of the public policy behind the laws that they are entrusted to enforce. And so I think that um, it will be a, a bit of a new day and age. It will be uh, more difficult for employers and maybe viewing uh, the risks uh, through the old lens, maybe during the prior administration, it's not so bad we can deal with it. I think it's going to be a whole new calculus of risk over the next 12 months.